You are listening to Making Contact. I'm Andrew Stelzer. Today we are talking about tent cities, and joining me now via Skype is Eric Tars, senior attorney with the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty. He helped edit a 2014 report titled Welcome Home, The Rise of Tent Cities in the United States. Eric, welcome to Making Contact. Thanks for having me. So to start off, let's get some numbers about what seems to be a growing trend. Uh, how many tent cities are in the U.S., and is there any estimate of how many people are living in them? Um, well, our report documented uh, media reports of tent cities in 46 states across the country. We believe that's a vast undercount, uh, that they, in fact, probably exist in every state, probably spring into existence and then are swept out of existence without media reports. Uh, and many tent cities uh, are, by design, you know, trying to avoid public notice. Some of these encampments were several hundred people. Some of them were just you know, a dozen families or a dozen individuals living together. And within these tent cities, are there similarities you found in your report? Are there best practices emerging? Usually where they have organically developed, there is a system of self-governance in place uh, that makes them feel safer for people and more conducive to their needs. Um, you know, th they may have a self-enforcing dry or sober policy or they may say, you know, it's okay if you're here, if you have some substance issues, but, uh, you know, you need to keep yourself managed while you're in the encampment, or we will kick you out collectively. Um, whereas uh, some of the ones that have been developed by cities themselves often have strict substance abuse policies, and um, they require governance from above, which makes it more of an us versus them, administration versus the people kind of relationship, whereas when it's self-governing, everybody's accepting responsibility for their own actions um, and for the well-being of their, their fellow encampment mates. So, so I'm wondering, is this new? Is this a trend? Uh, most of us are too old, but we read about Hoovervilles during the Great Depression. Is this just a new twist on that? Uh, something that's been done before? And, and if it is new, when did this current iteration of tent cities begin? Um, I, mean, I think it's been something that's been constant in some areas since the era of the Great Depression. But um, coming out of the Depression, you know, America kind of made a commitment to the people. President Roosevelt talked about a second Bill of Rights, that everybody should have access to a decent home, to a decent job with a, a living wage and uh, to Social Security, all those things. And um, we made uh, the growth of federally funded public housing came out of that and, and federal housing subsidies, as well as a lot of uh, commitments at the state and local levels. That uh, provided a safety net for a lot of people up until about 1978. Uh, that was the peak of funding. And since that point, um, we've seen federal funding be cut in about half for affordable housing while the, the federal budget for uh, high-end housing has actually gone up through the mortgage income interest tax deduction. So the subsidies are still going out from the federal government, but they're going to the people at the highest end of the income spectrum rather than the people who really need it. And so whereas public housing was once housing of last resort for just about anybody who needed it, uh, now only one in four 
eligible applicant is able to get access to federally funded housing um, or housing subsidies. And that means three out of four eligible people are simply having to make ends meet on their own. Um, and so I think we have come back to the point that uh, we were in towards uh, the middle of the depression where these Hoovervilles um, are springing up across the country because there simply isn't um, adequate affordable housing being built by private developers. And we also don't have funding supports either from the federal or state or local levels for people who need uh, the affordable housing. One of the communities included in your study is a tent city in St. Petersburg, Florida, called Pinellas Hope. And I actually visited Pinellas Hope back in 2009, and we broadcast a piece on them. So we're going to go back to the Making Contact archives and listen to a bit of that and then come back to discuss it. Let's hear some of that story. On a dead-end road in a wooded area on the outskirts of St. Petersburg, a lazy Sunday morning is getting underway. Eric Evanowskis is the facilities manager at Pinellas Hope, an experimental homeless village. As we walk past the entrance gate, what appears to be a giant campground unfolds. We are an outdoor facility. We have two large tents in which the clients dine and um, watch TV and have their recreation time. Um, we currently have about 200 Coleman outdoor tents, which the clients sleep in at night, these orange and uh, gray tents here. And then we also have to the right here, these uh, outdoor houses, which we'll slowly be transitioning the clients into. Across from the dining tents, there's a row of five wooden structures, nicknamed casitas, or little homes. It would be a major stretch to call them houses, but they provide all the shelter from the elements that a small home would. Eight feet tall and about as big as a queen-size bed, they're a step up from the tents most clients sleep in. These currently are unoccupied. Um, are they all locked at the moment? Okay, well, apparently they're all locked, but here you can peek in the window. As you can see inside, they're, they're just uh, secured to the ground with uh, ties, and then they're plywood. They have a uh, shingle roof and four windows for adequate ventilation. The casitas are as simple as it gets. In fact, the entire compound is bare bones, but it feels more like group living than a shelter. And that's what makes Pinellas Hope so popular with clients like Rocco Mariano, who's been on the streets on and off for the past five years. When I leave here, like, or, you know, to go to the store, I feel unsafe outside that gate. But when I, when I come here, I say, home, sweet home. I came here from living under a bridge. I will only be here four weeks this coming Thursday, and already my life has turned around completely. I never thought that seeing dirt and living in a 10 by 10 foot tent would be heaven. After moving into Pinellas Hope, Laura Leziati lined up a job working security for the 2009 Super Bowl in nearby Tampa. Pinellas Hope has its own shuttle bus running 14 hours a day to get residents to and from their jobs and other appointments. It's not like we're in jail, but you all have to be accountable, and that helps me be accountable to me. Drugs and alcohol are forbidden here, and there are several AA meetings every week. Residents can also be drug tested and breathalyzed when they come home. Participation in decisions and in daily life is key to making the residents here feel a sense of both community and responsibility. So this is our kitchen. As you can see, our clients are busily chopping away for lunch. Whenever possible, work is done by the residents. And that's, that's part of the community feeling here. Anytime something needs to be done, 
More often than not, we have someone here who's specialized in that before they became homeless. They can fix a dryer or they can service the air conditioning system. They can do that sort of thing. And then here's our laundry room. You can go in first if you'd like. In the laundry room, there are computers for checking email and searching for jobs. Originally funded for just five months, local governments decided Pinellas Hope was too valuable a project to lose. So several cities and the county chipped in to keep it running through October 2009. It costs about $3 million a year, but compared to most other shelters, that's cheap. Because of the basic living conditions, the camp only costs about $24 a day a person. I've had people that tell me that this isn't human, that how can you put people in tents? It's a heck of a lot better than on the street, and it's a heck of a lot better than being hurt or raped. And that's been happening a lot lately. A lot. <laughs> if I asked you, you'd stay in that tent, wouldn't you? No. Would you rather go to a house with 17 people in it? Oh, no. I'd rather be in this tent at nighttime. All right, you got it. And we're back with Eric Tars with the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty. Uh, so, Eric, how have things changed at Pinellas Hope since 2009 uh, when that audio was collected? And how typical is what we just heard in terms of how tent cities operate? You know, I think you can hear that the community can do some good, that when people have you know, at least a, a safe place to leave their belongings and to lay their head at night that they don't need to worry about where they are going. Um, you know, it, it's a relief to them that they um, can take that need, that basic human need, off of their checklist of things that they have to do that day. And then they are able to go out and do other things like look for employment. The, the other thing that's happened in St. Petersburg, unfortunately, is that um, despite the fact that even the 200 tents that are cited at Pinellas Hope are not adequate to, to meet the full needs of uh, the community, um, St. Petersburg uh, continues to criminalize homelessness to uh, say that for people who don't have a place to stay or choose not to follow the rules um, of Pinellas Hope, that it's okay for them to be shipped off to jail. Um, and, or given fines for, for trying to sleep in other places. And that's another big danger that we see of the creation of these uh, 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 legal tent encampments is if it makes communities feel like, well, we've given people a place to go, even if that place isn't adequate to meet their needs, um, that it frees us up to be able to, to criminally punish people who choose not to go there. You know, we as an organization uh, don't endorse the growth of legalized tent cities. We don't we could because our ultimate belief is that housing, adequate housing, is a basic human right to which every American should be entitled. And so, uh, acknowledging the legalization and the creation of legal um, uh, tent cities is an abdication of our duty. Uh, towards our fellow Americans to make sure that they have the housing that they need because tents aren't adequate housing. Um, but that said, uh, where they do exist, we don't believe that they should be evicted unless adequate housing options are provided. 
Um, so many communities are now looking at um, creating uh, tent cities as the crises um, of their affordable housing and, and the uh, ad hoc development of tent cities becomes uh, an overwhelming problem. Um, you know, I think they need to be very conscious of uh, how they do that, um, if they want to do that, if it's going to act actually uh, lessen the, their push towards permanent solutions, towards appropriate, adequate solutions in the long run. Um, but if it's something that they are considering for just the short term um, to give people a safe uh, place to go, they need to be looking at not just safe, but as adequate as possible. So is it located? Uh, convenient to transportation? Is it con located convenient to other services? Um, are uh, there, you know, going to be uh, adequate infrastructure provided, uh, you know, porta potties, uh, waste removal, um, those sorts of things. So uh, it's a, a clean and safe environment. Um, ultimately, um, you know, it, the question is, are we meeting the need for all people, um, you know, and meeting people where they are. The, the biggest success that we've seen in actually ending homelessness um, has been through the housing first approach, um, which says that people should be just given housing to take, again, that take that basic need off their checklist of things they need to do every day and then allow them to uh, be able to organize their lives and, and um, uh, get the services and get the support they need to stabilize themselves. In many of our communities, what we've seen is um, just a complete skewing of the housing market. So in uh, Los Angeles, for example, last year, 90% of the housing that was constructed was affordable to only 10% of the population. That means the other 90% of the population is competing for only 10% of the housing stock that's being produced. Um, we need to radically shift our priorities, um, whether it's through uh, development incentives or market subsidies or some other means, so that our communities are actually developing the housing that is affordable to the people who live in it. Otherwise, we're going to continue to see the growth of these tent cities. So I would much rather address the problem of homelessness um, before it starts than have to be dealing with it um, once people are actually homeless. Eric Tars is with the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty. We will link to their report titled Welcome Home, the Rise of Tent Cities in the United States on our website, radioproject.org. Eric, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks for having me on and uh, happy to do it again.